Ezra chapter 5. Ezra 5. We're going to be in Ezra 5 and 6 today. When you walked in today, you should have received a little communion cup. If you did not, if you can raise your hand and Brother Steve will make sure you get that now. But at the end of the message today, we're going to be celebrating communion together as a faith family, remembering the greatest sacrifice ever given for our salvation. But as we turn to Ezra 5, we're going to be in Ezra 5 and 6 today. Welcome to week 5 of our Ezra-Nehemiah series, a series ultimately about a God who renovates, a God who revives, a God who restores, a God who redeems. And last week, we saw the people of God back in Jerusalem. The altar of sacrifice had been rebuilt. The foundation of the second temple had been laid. The next logical step is for the second temple to be built on that new foundation. And yet, instead of that happening, what we saw was opposition to the work of God. We saw a discouraged people of God, and we saw the work of the temple stop. For sixteen, almost 16 years, it stopped. And there are times in all of our lives when it feels like nothing is happening. There's times in our lives where it feels like we have God's word, we have God's purpose, we have God's spirit leading us, and yet we look around and it seems like God's purposes have been frustrated, maybe even ruined. And so often, discouragement sets in through a lack of tangibly seeing any results for our efforts. God has given us a word, God's given us a command, and we set out to see God's work accomplished only to see it all come to a stop. And I tell you, this kind of discouragement or that kind of discouragement is a hard place to climb out of. And asking someone today, have you ever been discouraged, is like asking the question, are you human? I mean, we are all prone to discouragement. Rare, if non-existent, is the person who doesn't have to deal with discouragement in some form or fashion. And just think about this. Left unchecked, discouragement will become our eyes and our ears. Discouragement will determine what we hear what we see and how we see it and hear it. Left unchecked, discouragement will become the master of our emotions, the ruler of our choices and the actions that we do. Left unchecked, discouragement will rob us of our hope and our motivation. It will cause us to see the negative even though there's nothing negative there and it will cause us to miss the positive when it is right in front of us. If given room, discouragement will tell us lies that have the power to destroy our lives. Discouragement is natural when we suffer and walk through difficulty. But let me just say this. Although discouragement is natural, it makes a very, very, very bad master. Discouragement makes a terrible master. And we have to be careful. So we come to the end, or when we come to the end of Ezra 4, the people are discouraged the work on the temple had stopped. And I think about the words of Derek Kidner, who says, and we'll put it on the screen, he says, like every spiritual advance, so every single one of them, from Abraham to the missionary expansion in Acts. That covers a, lo a long period of time. This venture, he says, meaning building the temple, began with a word from the Lord. And in common with the rest of all of God's doings, it was quickly tested and threatened. 
So the people received a word from the Lord. They began to do the work of God, and yet their work was tested and their work was threatened. And the question that arises at the end of Ezra chapter 4 is, how can this dismal situation be reversed? How can the Lord's people put their discouragement behind them so they can finish the task that God has placed before them, so they can actually finish the temple? And what we're going to see this morning in a very refreshing and encouraging way is that God used his word spoken by prophets to stir the people to continue and finish the work. So let's dive in this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5 and then skip ahead to verses 13 through 22 of chapter 6 and then in my message I will fill in the rest. So beginning at chapter 5 verse 1 it says this, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Drubal, the son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bazanai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Now look at verse 16 of chapter, excuse me, verse 13 of chapter 6. Then according to the word sent by Darius, the king, Tadani, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazanai and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God, or the, the house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their division and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. Thank you as we're going to see today the power of your word how the power of your word creates, how the power of your word stirs, how the power of your word moves. 
And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do so in and through your word today among your people. Stir us. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate communion at the end of this message today. To remember as the people of Israel remembered Passover for the first time in many, many years. We are able to remember today the sacrifice of our Savior for us. And may it be as they rejoiced and joyfully celebrated, Lord, may we celebrate what we have, O oh God, in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So the glorious temple was in ruins. The beauty of Jerusalem had basically become just a blackened circle of earth. God's people were now in a foreign land. But as we know, as we've been seeing, the story doesn't end there. In case you have forgotten, I hope you haven't, but Ezra is a story of how God takes a defeated people who were defeated because of their sins against God, and God moves supernaturally to send them back to Jerusalem to see the temple rebuilt, a people rebuilt, and the city rebuilt. God raised up a remnant over 40,000 exiles to return to Jerusalem. God stirred the heart of a pagan king. God stirred the heart of the people who would go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And this sounds interesting and even captivating. And yet, for some understandable reasons and then for others that we can't understand, Ezra seems to be perpetually on the, the B team of all of the Old Testament heroes. Meaning, Although Ezra plays an important part in two Old Testament books, he's in Ezra, he's in Nehemiah, the average Christian knows very little about Ezra. He is not the most popular, he is not well known. Ezra is not connected to the most memorable events in Scripture, so when compared to the parting of the Red Sea or the crumbling of the walls of Jericho or the falling of a giant... The stories that we see in Ezra do not reduce themselves nearly so happily to flannel graph, if you know what I'm saying there. The, the reason why Ezra oftentimes is so neglected is because, first of all, there's no recorded miracles in the book of Ezra, so many people aren't drawn there. But also, Ezra lived and ministered during the final stage of Old Testament history. It's a stage that's called the Restoration Period, but for most people in the church, it should be it should be given the name the Forgotten Period because we don't think about it as much as we should. Yet, the God who is, or our God who is the same yesterday, to today, and forever, he worked powerfully then, and praise God, he works powerfully now. He works powerfully now. So I want to unpack today four truths, really just four snapshots from these two chapters that will lead us, I pray, to our own celebration today the first snapshot or picture is this the word of god is declared the word of god is declared so as we saw last week the jews received a stop work order from earthly authorities and of course the work stopped for 16 almost 16 years it stopped but after that time the heavenly king sends a resume work order and the order of the heavenly king supersedes every other throne on earth. And look at the verses on the screen, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel and Jeshua 
arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So God's order came through two prophets, through Haggai and Zechariah, whose messages are recorded actually in the Bible. They're in the minor prophets, and they're not minor because they're lesser men. They're minor because they're just shorter prophecies. But Haggai finds the Jews in a spiritually lethargic state. They were just lazy. They had given themselves to other things, and they were neglecting the house of God. So Haggai's message to them was, think carefully, consider your ways, and work faithfully. Let me show you kind of a glimpse of the message of Haggai. I'm going to show you on, on the screen. This is Haggai 1, verses 1 through 5, and then 13 through 14. It says this. In the second year of Darius, the king, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest. Thus says the Lord. These people say, let me pause for a second. Think about this. God is speaking to Haggai, and he says, these people. Have you ever been in a conversation with your husband and wife, and you say, your child? Not, not my child. This is your. They're acting just like you. This is what God is saying. He doesn't say my people. He says these people. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. It is, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Two times here in Haggai, Haggai says through God, consider your ways. Consider what you're doing. Consider how you're living. Then it continues. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And what a message this is. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts there God. That's the message of Haggai. Consider your ways. Get to work. God is with you. And then through Zechariah, the prophet, God gives a series of inspiring visions to Zechariah showing the future temple. And the prophet delivers that message that God will enable his people to finish. Let me just show you that verses 16 and 17 of Zechariah 1. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So the appearance of Haggai and Zechariah offered it offers to us a wonderful whole Bible connector as we link the story with, with the prophets who brought God's word to them. So the prophecies by which we read come alive when we think about and understand and set them really in historical context. Some prophets like Isaiah spoke before the exile, before the people went into Babylon. Then there's other prophets like Jeremiah who spoke when the exile is happening, as Babylon is coming and setting up a siege against Jerusalem. Jeremiah is speaking. And then other prophets like Haggai and Zechariah declared God's word to the remnant who had now come back to Jerusalem. And here's the message here. Here's the point. And please hear this. 
God has sent his word into every part of the history of his people. Every part of the history of God's people, God has given his word. And we're told in verse 2 of chapter 5 that the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Supporting them to keep going. So God in every age provides his people with his living, his powerful, his active word. The word of God is living, it's powerful, it's creative. Think about this. Just like in the beginning when God spoke, and God spoke, and the universe was created. So God's word today is still creative. What I mean by that? God's word creates in us conviction of sin. God's word creates in us a heart change to repent. God's word creates in us faith and trust to follow Jesus. Listen, no matter if you consider yourself to be eloquent with your words or not, the only change agent in the hearts of people is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Therefore, let the Word of God out. Let it out. I love the words of Spurgeon concerning the Word of God. Spurgeon says this, Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion. There he is in the cage, and here comes all the soldiers of the army to fight for the lion. Well, Spurgeon said, I should suggest to them that they should kindly stand back and open the cage and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him. And then Spurgeon says this, the best way to let, or the best way, excuse me, to defend the word of God is to let it out. Let it out. Speak the word of God. So the word of God is declared. But then secondly, the work of God is opposed. The work of God is opposed. So again, as we saw last week, we are going to face opposition. I know that's encouraging, but that is true. As Christians, we are never promised comfortable and easy by God. Instead, all the way through the word of God, here's what God promises us. Trouble difficulty, suffering. But the word of God also says that all of that will be worth it for the child of God. It will be worth it for us. When we decide to pursue God, the opposition tends to intensify. When you begin to get serious about the things of God, you will see the, the, the enemy begin to come at you in different ways and that attack intensifies in your life. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when we're trying to seek the Lord and do a work for God when we face opposition. Yes, we should be disappointed, but we shouldn't be surprised. So after the people of Judah had the fire lit back in them by the word of God to do the work of God, they experienced pushback from Tadani, the, the leader who represented Persia. And again, anytime, as we said last week, anytime God begins to do a work, Satan will always conduct an opposing work. And, and these men come and they begin to question those who are building the temple. In fact, you see on the screen, it says, at the same time, Tadani the governor spoke to them thus. And I kind of love these questions because Tadani sounds like a little tattletale. He's like the hall monitor here. He says, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? So where's your hall pass? And then he says, what are the names of the men building this building? So he wants to write all the names. He's like, I'm tattling on all of you. 
I want to make sure every single one of your names is mentioned. So the opposition to God's work continues here and will continue all the way through the end of Nehemiah. As we read last week, or we heard last week from Tozer, doing the work of God puts us in lion country. And when you do the work of God, you will hear the roar of the enemy. But let me say this. Look, we don't always understand why things unfold the way they do. We don't always understand the opposition that we face. We don't always understand why. We don't always understand any of it, but we know that all the while, God is present even in the things that we don't understand and don't enjoy. God is present with us. I don't think anyone humanly helps us understand this better than Elizabeth Elliot. If you know anything about her story, she was a missionary who spent years among the Hurani people in Ecuador. And that might not sound like a big deal until you realize, well, that that same Hurani people killed her husband and four other men, and she went back to share the gospel with them. Even after her husband had died, she eventually remarried. Only a few years after she remarried, her second husband died. Elliot knew what it meant to serve God and yet live with unexpected loss and pain. And she wrote several books, but one of the only, or the only work of fiction that she wrote was a book in 1966 called No Graven Images. This was a novel about a missionary woman who basically mortgaged her life, gave all of her life to go to a remote tribe to translate the Bible into their language. After times of looking, she finally found the only person in the world who knew both her language and the language of the tribe. That person gets sick, and this missionary accidentally kills him by giving him a shot in the wrong way. The tribe then believes that she caused the death, and they take all the work of her Bible translation, and they throw it in the river, and they ruin it all. And let me tell you, that's how the book ends. Everything has fallen apart. And at the end, Elizabeth Elliot says that if we... If we had created God, our God that we create would do everything that we want him to do. And he would explain everything that doesn't go our way, but that probably wouldn't happen if we created the God in our image. But then she says this, but if he is God, he has a right to do with me what he wants. So after this book came out, Elliot received so many letters from professing Christians saying, we hate your book because my God would never treat me like that. Even Christianity Today, Christianity Today, a a magazine that still exists, refused to do a review on her book because they said it was too negative. And yet, in a sense, this novel that she did was biographical because this was her life. This was how she lived. And the reason that she wrote this book was to tell us that if we have a God who does everything we want him to do, if we have a God that we can always understand, and if we have a God that never contradicts us, then we have created a graven image, that we've created our own God. Listen, brothers and sisters, and please hear this, but hear my heart here. We have a God who does allow his people to, to suffer and although there are times that we can't understand him 
there is never a time that we can't trust him. There are times that we can't understand him, but there are there's never there will never be a time that we can't trust him. You want me to tell you why one of the reasons I believe the book of Ezra was written? The book of Ezra was written, I believe, because hundreds and even thousands of years later, God's people would struggle and still struggle with the question, can I still trust God when everything falls apart around me? When I think I have a word from God that doesn't go the way I think it should, can I keep trusting God? And the answer of Ezra and the answer of Paul is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? The work is opposed. But understand this, brothers and sisters, the work of our lives for God will be opposed. But if God is for us, who can be against us? So the work of God is opposed. Number three, quickly, the temple of God is finished. The temple of God is finished. So let me highlight a huge portion of Ezra 5 and 6. I'm going to highlight it because this was part of our Bible reading this week, and I, I know you've already read it, so you're, you're ready for it. But So the opposition wrote a letter to King Darius, who was now the new ruler in Persia, reporting that the Jews were now rebuilding the temple, and the Jews in Jerusalem had explained to Tadonai that they said, listen, King Solomon, our great king, built a temple because of our sin. God allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy our temple and take us away. So they understood why it all happened, their sin. The Jews then claimed to Tatanai, listen, King Cyrus gave us a decree to come back and to rebuild this temple. So Tatanai sends a letter to King Darius basically saying, could you please, king, if you have an opportunity, check the archives and see whether King Cyrus gave this decree, whether he permitted them to rebuild the temple. So that's exactly what Darius does. He begins in chapter 6. We read that King Darius conducted a search in the archives and he found the records where King Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and even where he pledged to fund the whole project. So after discovering this, what King Darius does is he orders Tatnai to literally to keep away from the Jews. Let them keep working. And then he goes further, because not only does he say keep away, he says everything that you're collecting out of the royal revenue around you, give it to them. And don't just give them the funds, give them animals so they can sacrifice to God. So Darius basically says to, Tat to Tatnai, the work is going to continue, and you're going to pay for it. <laughs> you're going to pay for it. And here's what we read. If you can look at verses 13 through 15 of Ezra 6. In verse 13 it says, Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bazanai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. Then 14, and you see that on, on the screen, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu. So they're, they're prospering because... The prophets are continuing to encourage them through the word of God. Then it says this, they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. Then it goes on, and by decree of Cyrus by, and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. What we just read in verse 14 is what's called the doctrine of concurrence. The doctrine of concurrence basically tells us that the Lord is working and the Lord is able to overrule. We know that without a doubt. 
but the Lord is working. At the same time the Lord works, we work. And God works in conjunction with our work. Now, sometimes because of our rebellion, God has to overrule what we do. But God works in conjunction with the things that we do. In fact, the question, when you read verse 14, well, was the temple rebuilt because the Lord's doing? Or was it the decision of the Persian king? And verse 14 would say, yes. Yes, all of it. Think about Genesis 50. In Genesis 50, Joseph says to his brothers, after his brothers had sold him into slavery, Joseph said, what you meant for evil. You did this. You're responsible for this. What you meant for evil, or he said, you meant it for evil, but God worked it for good. It's the doctrine of concurrence that we work and God works right alongside of us. Praise God, sometimes overruling our very work. And then verse 15 says, they finished their building by decree of, of God. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar. So the temple was completed four years after the work was renewed. So 20 years after the rebuilding efforts began. And the completion of the temple happened basically 70 years after the temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C. And I want you to think about when you read and hear about the temple being finished and then the celebration, think about what was missing from the second temple. I wish I had time to go deep into this, but I don't. But missing from the second temple was, number one, the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't there. Now, most people believe that sometime before the Babylonians came in, the Israelites believed that Jeremiah, the prophet, hid it somewhere so the Babylonians couldn't get to it. What we know is it never resurfaced. It never made its way back in. And if you want an interesting study, do a study of what replaced the Ark of the Covenant for the second temple, and it was what's called the foundation stone. And Read into that because it becomes a whole nother mess in and of itself. But then secondly, there was no holy fire in the second temple, the fire that was always kept burning, that would light the altar of sacrifice. That was not in the second temple. And then there was no Shekinah glory. So when the tabernacle was dedicated, when the first temple was de dedicated, the Shekinah glory of God came in and smoke filled the temple and the tabernacle. Well, that doesn't happen here. I know that sounds negative of what's not here, but let me tell you what was there. God's word and God's people. God's word and God's people. We might not have all the things that they had then, but what we do have, we have God's son, his word. We have his people, each other. So the temple of God is finished. And then lastly, number four, the four snaps out is this, the people of God celebrated. The people of God celebrated. So the celebration that follows the construction of the temple was a vital part of the people of God, the vital part of, of them living as God's people. We're told in verse 19, on the 14th day of the first month, they returned, or the returned exiles kept the Passover. More on that in just a second, but that's a big deal. Then in verse 21, it says they kept the Passover to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And let me say something today. When you think about this, think about the Passover and what the people did in keeping the Passover. Traditions that we often do, they can be dangerous, but they can also be very meaningful. Because traditions have a way of connecting us to the past. Traditions have a way of reminding us what has taken place in the past. Think about this. We celebrate Christmas by giving gifts, reminding us of the gift that God gave to us, the Greatest gift that God gave to us through his son. On Memorial Day, we remember 
look back, remember those who have given their lives for our freedom, for the freedoms that we have and enjoy, for the Jew. And that day, Passover is one of the most meaningful connections to the past. The celebration of Passover concludes this section recalling how God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. It was the high point of salvation history to Israel. On the night when the angel of death passed over, and if there was a home that had the blood of a spotless lamb on its door frame, the angel of death would pass over. But every home in Egypt did not have that. A firstborn was killed. So those who had the spotless blood of a lamb on the doorpost were spared. And God used that to deliver his people from Egypt. So they could be free and they could worship the Lord. In fact, last night I was reading Exodus 12 about this whole picture. Did you know that Exodus 12 verse 14 calls the Passover Memorial Day? It says this is our Memorial Day. This was their day of remembrance. So as these returned exiles, in verse 20 of chapter 6, as they slaughtered the Passover lamb, they praised the God who had rescued their people from Egypt, but they were also praising the God who had rescued them from Babylon. They praised the God who rescues his people. Hear this still. God rescues his people still, even now. And then verse 22 says this, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days. Hear this, don't miss this, with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. I love this picture among God's people of God giving them joy. I once heard a statement, and I think it needs to be more true here and in my life, but it is this, what we celebrate, we emulate. We become what we celebrate. We become what we celebrate. We need to celebrate the right things more and more so that we become those things. But I love this picture of just joyfully celebrating. God, when was the last time you looked back or you looked around and celebrated the ways that God has worked in your life, in your family, in our church, and you were just filled with joy that you serve this God, that you are his and he is yours? When was the last time God restored the joy of your salvation in your life? So the high point of this whole chapter is Passover. As the people of God observe Passover. And we're even told in verse 21 that those from the outside cleansed themselves and were able to celebrate Passover. And today, those of us who have turned from our sin, who have trusted in Jesus, we remember that Jesus is, according to 1 Corinthians 5, our Passover lamb. He is our great sacrifice. We remember and celebrate that, not through the observance of Passover, but through the observance of communion, what we call the Lord's Supper. And let me just say this. Communion is more than a tradition. And communion is more than just an empty ritual. Communion is a celebration of what we have through God's Son who came here for us. It's a reminder that our story connects us with the history of the people of God throughout all ages. People who have been, just like us, rescued from the darkness and death of sin. And brought to life or entered into a new exodus through Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, on a weekend that we take time 
as a nation together to remember all who have given their lives to gain our freedom and to keep the freedom that we often, if we're honest, take for granted. But on a weekend that we do that, in light of where we are today in the word, I want us to end our time together this morning by remembering the greatest sacrifice ever made. The sacrifice of the perfect son of God for us. Meaning that right now, this is a memorial moment for us. This is a memorial moment for us as the people of God. We're not just remembering, we're rejoicing. We're rejoicing in what God has done for us. Not because we were deserving and we were worthy, just the opposite. But God showed that he's deserving and that he's worthy, and he did it for us. So we are rejoicing in the one whose body was broken, whose blood was shed for us. What we're about to do, we're about to do in remembrance of him. And we are about to remember why he came, his body, his blood for us. So what I want to do now is I want to pause for just a second. And the word of God tells us that when we come to this portion this time of celebrating communion, we need to do so in reverence. We need to do so rightly. We don't need to do this in a haphazard way. We need to do this by reflecting on what Christ has done for us. So I want to pause just a second. Let's take time to reflect, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to begin this time. So let us pause for just a moment. Father, as we take time today to come to this significant moment, this memorial moment of remembering, Jesus, what you did for us, why you came, what you did. Lord, this is a a humble moment. We're humbled by your sacrifice, Jesus, but this is also a joyful moment, a celebratory moment, Lord, that we are celebrating, Jesus, what you have done for us, and we are free indeed. Lord, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us, Lord, for thoughts about you that aren't worthy of you. Forgive us, Lord, for where we create you in our own image. Instead of lining ourselves up by your word, through your spirit, to be and to do what you have created us to be and do. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for life everlasting in him. And as we come to this celebration this holy moment we do so in remembrance of him be glorified in this time in jesus name amen we want to begin today with the what represents the body of our savior the bread you can peel that very top layer off and if you can take the bread and that bread represents the broken body of our savior his body was broken and bruised for us, for our sin, for what we did. Before we take this together, I'm going to have Brother Steve to just pray a prayer over this bread. So let us pray together.
John 6 says, This is the bread that came from heaven, not the bread that our fathers ate and died. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. then we want to take come to the cup that represents the blood of our savior shed for us and i'm going to ask brother frank robinson to pray this prayer over the cup today so let us pray again Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of his son, Jesus, cleanses us from all our sins. His body, his blood for us. And we are told in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I've got good news for us, brothers and sisters. He is coming. He is coming. So what we're going to do today, we're going to end our service a little different than normal. We are going to, in just a second, I'm going to pray. I'm going to call Brother Frank up. We're going to kind of have a time of just singing a song that kind of confirms what we just heard and what we just did. And then we will do the offering at the, the end. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for all that we have celebrated. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for us. Thank you that you are indeed the true Passover lamb. Lord, help us to humbly rejoice in that, to rejoice in you, O oh God. Just finish this time today. In Jesus' name, amen.